You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Roger, copy. This is not an exercise. Today's show is brought to you by Bombfell. This is a new way to purchase clothes. For $25 off your first purchase, visit bombfell.com slash myhistory. I picture a split-screen movie. In one box, say, on the far left, a man races from a smoking car down the highway. In another, a man scratching words on a piece of notepaper. In the center right, a large group of people holding signs, marching forward in endless columns. And to the far right, a rocket propelled by enormous fire rises then splits into parts. Well, the man must run down that highway. He has no choice. He was driving his car, and then there was the boom, the flash of light, the smoke. And his car stops in this little Kansas town. But he can't just wait there. He's a doctor, and this is an emergency. He needs to get to the hospital. There are sick. There are dying to tend to. He thinks back. Just a few days before, the basketball game in the quiet, festive town. A couple about to be married. Now his town. And indeed, the heart of America is a wasteland. This was the vision of November 7th, 1983. Almost all of America saw this vision. 37 million. That's a lot now, and that's an awful lot back then. We're watching The Day After. A special TV movie dramatizing the moment that the U.S. and the Soviet Union launched nuclear weapons. President Reagan notes in the diary, it's anti-nuke propaganda. But we are going to take it over and say it shows that we need to keep doing what we're doing. Indeed, George Shultz, Secretary of State, issues a statement right after the broadcast that is read by the news networks and on a panel discussion, nuclear war is unacceptable. The realization of it is the basis for the successful policy of the United States. 
On the day that the film airs, the Reagans were in the White House watching Robin Hood. 1983, the year that we'll discuss, was a high point of the Cold War scare. I mean, the highest point might have been Berlin, and certainly we know the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I still think it's hard to get back to 1983 mentally. And many of you listening were not born in 1983, or not conscious enough. So we'll bring you back historically, because it's important. It's a time when the day after was not far-fetched. Thousands of nuclear warheads pointed at cities in the United States. And indeed, they still are to an extent, but it was so much more intense then because it was by a power that was not talking at all, a power that had possible hostile intent. And of course, the United States had missiles aimed right back at the Soviet Union. But there was more. The nuclear thing gets all the attention, but there was also the threat of conventional forces, Soviet superior conventional force, which could march across free Europe, turn them into Warsaw Pact puppet states. It was a fear of war that no one could control. But 1983 also saw a move to place new weapons on this stage, a move that President Reagan was spearheading. Following NATO policy since 1979, but doing so vehemently. British Labour Party, the Italian Communists, the German Socialists bristled and gained support of the conservative opponents. The Soviets floated a bold idea of a nuclear-free Europe. Now, arguably, it was to their advantage if it was not accompanied by a reduction in conventional forces. Hundreds of thousands of protesters march in Bonn, Germany, the head of West Germany, symbolically to show their displeasure with the United States. The protesters march near the statue that honors the Berlin Airlift, the greatest favor of the United States to the new Germany. It's not just Germany. In June 1982, protesters fill Central Park in New York City. So many protesters that the New York Police Department cannot estimate it, but says it's got to be over one million. They're holding signs that say, build houses, not warheads, no nukes, freeze or burn, save the humans. Reagan is a bomb. Both should be banned. Hundreds in red shirts that say, disarm. There are jugglers, t-shirt vendors, buttons on display. It's not just hippies and crazies anymore. It's everybody, a protester tells the newspaper. It feels like the 60s, said another. 2,000 buses bring in people from Connecticut and from as far away as Quebec for the Central Park protest. Coretta Scott King is in the crowd. It's not just New York City. These are mirrored by worldwide anti-nuke protests around the world, an encampment in Seneca Falls. Protesters storm the Massachusetts factory where rockets are made. 70,000 protesters link arms in Berkshire in the United Kingdom. They form a 14-mile-long chain of arms. 5,000 people attend a service, an interdenominational service in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. for nuclear disarmament. 
There's something like 50 separate events of large-scale anti-nuke. A peace vigil outside the White House starts. And that peace vigil, by the way, continues today. Not hit, shake it. Set my foot on the gas. Run at 6 a.m. Drink my breakfast fast. Gotta give me some gas station beer. Gas station beer. Musically, there is much picked up in this nervousness about weapons. The song 99 Luftballons, the band Nina, is a big radio hit. The guitarist of the band who writes the song attends a concert in West Berlin. And the winds were blowing so hard, and, and there were balloons in the crowd. And he thought, what if one of these balloons drifted over to the Soviet side, to East Berlin? And someone thought it was a bomb. And it started a devastating war that destroyed the world. And that's reflected in the song, where, in the end of it, all that's left is a single balloon. The band U2 releases its album War and the song Seconds. Lead singer Paul Hewson, or Bono Vox, sings the lyrics. It takes a second to say goodbye, push the button, and pull the plug. It captures the hair-trigger feeling of that year. Musical protests are picking up the vibe of politics as both sides harden. War, Bonovac said, was the motive of 1983. Francois Mitterrand, president of France, says in October 1983, each of the superpowers has 2,000 to 3,000 launchers carrying 8,000 to 9,000 warheads, which could reach and destroy each other seven or eight times over. And here I will say, as a child of the 80s, you did hear that stat a lot. How many times we could destroy each other, how many times over? It echoed what the media and State, uh, Secretary of State George Shultz were saying at the time, that this year could indeed be the year of the missile. In Germany, it was called the year of the rocket. But oddly enough, as these anti-nuclear marches were occurring, and resistance to mainstream establishment thinking of mutually assured destruction, of building up defense, of keeping opponents at an arm's length, treating them and their people as enemies. As resistance to that is occurring, they had a partner, an odd partner, in spirit, though certainly not in person and certainly not in method. A few of Reagan's closest friends and advisors felt that personally, Reagan himself was anti-nuke. We discussed it previously on this series, but here's his good friend Thomas C. Reed, former Undersecretary of the Air Force and one of the California friends. 
The president was a believer, having been raised by his mother in the disciples of Christ. Reagan had studied the New Testament, Revelation 16.16. He feared the final biblical struggle, the cataclysmic showdown between good and evil that might come during his term in office. Campaign manager Stu Spencer said that it's a very similar thing, that he asked Reagan in 1980, like, when we win this election, what do you want to do? I want to end the Cold War. Spencer had expected him to talk about taxes, defense, you know, building American prestige. That didn't seem to be an option on the table. Sure, we'd all like to end the Cold War. That didn't seem to be an option on the table. Bud McFarlane, one of his national security advisors, said he saw himself not as a god, but as a heroic figure on Earth. It's not an evolution, as far as I can tell. It was something that was present in his thinking all along, or at least since the 60s, say. Michael Deaver, and we discussed this in other episodes, how the man who asked for increased missiles, you know, he's defeated in 1982 in a plan for the dense pack, for the MX missile to increase these large clusters of constantly moving missile silos in Wyoming. The experts, even some strong hawks in Congress, are against it. It's not going to work. Increases the defense budget some 45%. But he also, as Deaver says, scratches off a letter on White House stationery to Brezhnev. And he gives it to his national security team during a meeting up in the residence. Reagan's wearing a bathrobe, according to Deaver, was from deep in his soul. He had met Brezhnev before. We talked about this in the first episode. And he said, remember when we met and, and you took my hand, Brezhnev, and you said, we can't allow this to go to war. Let's not do it. He tells Margaret Thatcher during a meeting that mutually assured destruction is immoral. Now, Reagan is no picket sign holder, nor is he a Bono Vox. Thomas Reed and his other friends assert how his type of peace, his vision for peace, is paralleled with a peace through strength, peace through tough talk, the kind of things in arms control negotiations that was called the dual track. We're going to keep increasing the missiles until there's negotiations otherwise. You know, sounds very good on paper and the planners, but it's also like, well, what if there's no negotiations? Then you keep building missiles. And then there's a hair-trigger event. We mentioned how when the, the day after aired that uh, Reagan was watching Robin Hood. And what I hadn't mentioned, of course, is that Reagan had received an advance copy from the producers of the movie, and he watches it in October. And then I think we get a more genuine reaction to the day after in his diary. He records, It left me very depressed. We must see that there is never a nuclear war. Dyer of Reagan's not published till after his death. The letter to Brezhnev, not widely known, not widely talked about. There's always a lot of communications between the U.S. and the Soviet, but they're so gamed up. The earnestness of the letter uh, is only known by the people closest to Reagan, and some of those people didn't like the idea. 
In fact, national security team during the meeting in the resonance takes this, you know, letter and says, well, we'll review it. And Michael Deaver says, you know, you're the president. If you want to send a letter to Brezhnev, you send it to him. It does go to him. It's not well received. And Brezhnev dies the next year in any case. So everything outward is this hard stance. The truth is that a freeze now would be a very dangerous fraud, for that is merely the illusion of peace. The reality is that we must find peace through strength. I would agree to a freeze if only we could freeze the Soviets' global desires. A freeze at current levels of weapons would remove any incentive for the Soviets to negotiate seriously in Geneva. Reagan's very clear during the campaign. What's his strategy for the Cold War? We win. They lose. He attacks the very fundamental system of communism, that communism is going to be left in the ash heap of history. Well, we know what that metaphor means, and he's quoting Marx and all of that. It could be interpreted, too, as uh, we're going to destroy this regime. Soviet leaders have been challenged by American presidents before, but no one, not even, say, that hardliner Nixon, had expressed a desire for regime change or any hope that it would happen. Soviets have been in power since 1917. This, and it must be said, as well as Soviet intransigence, really makes 1983 that year of the missile. We tend to think of rockets going into space as exciting, you know, ingrained as we are in the images of the Apollo program. And the vehicle enters the sky. The famous rockets of 1983 look like those somewhat, but they are smaller. And their intention is not to find new worlds. They won't be even visiting the moon anytime soon. Their intention is simple and destructive. But they are complex. They have a few parts. The first stage of a Pershing missile, an aluminum ring, detaches shortly after liftoff. The first stage is all about propelling the rocket. The second propels it thousands of miles farther. Despite what will be a barbaric aim, it is smart. This second stage is smart enough to detach at the right time and then reverse thrust off so that the second stage detachment of the missile will not spoil the missile's pathway. The third part of this latest technology is a GNC, a guidance and control module. It contains a Goodyear Aerospace Active Radar Guidance System. The latest controls pitch, and it has a radar map of the target zone. It can see like a bat. It can hit buildings, perhaps. It can hit command centers. The intent, at least, of the impact of these missiles is hitting specific targets to take out the retaliatory capability. That's the third part, the brain. Let's, for the moment, jump to the fuse. This will light the warhead, a W-85 set to 5 to 80 kilotons, depending on a target. For the record, that is many times stronger than Hiroshima. Yet there are thousands of these missiles, hundreds in the new Pershing-2 system, replacing missiles in Europe originally placed back in the 60s. Reagan, in selling the program and selling the MX program as well, calls the old missiles jalopies. The Soviets have replaced their missiles in 76. And so 
There is a NATO plan starting in 79 to replace it, but it's actually going to get implemented at this point. These are designed, the Pershing II, not just to prevent, it's an important thing to think about, nuclear war in the 80s, uh, not just a nuclear attack going back and forth, but also tanks rolling into Western Europe from the Warsaw Pact nation. Perhaps the impact of such a conventional threat, if caught early, could be eliminated. I want to speak for a moment about the premium podcast from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. I'm so grateful for those who have subscribed. Um, really a big help to support the program. If you're listening and this is kind of one of the podcasts that you're really, oh, I wish I had you know more content, I could hear more episodes, sign up for the premium podcast. It can be as little as $2 a month. It's at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. You sign up. It's a separate RSS feed for the premium extra podcast, the extra podcast from My History and Beat Up Your Politics. And you can use that on any podcast app that's out there that, that I know of anyway, all the, all the big ones. And you can listen to this special feed. In addition to you're going to get episodes on a regular basis, including bonus episodes and replays of archived episodes. You're going to get access to an archive of episodes. And that's going to, how many you get depends on what membership level. All right. We got the Friends of My History and Beat Up Your Politics at $2 a month. Got Grover Cleveland at $8 a month. Chester Arthur at 4 And the Cincinnati at 19 That's it. That's for the foundational members that are really helping to support My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. And I'm very thankful for them. Some of the equipment you hear me talking on is the result of, of member donations. It really is. Uh, the fact that I have a new podcast host, Lipson, which is much better and allows me to be on YouTube and other places that other podcasts have been and we haven't been able to get to, all because of member donations. So www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Help support the show and get bonus episodes. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. You grab the paddle console that's attached to your home game system, which is plugged into your television set. You put in the cartridge and a pixely yellow and green picture of the United States. Well, a section of the United States. These graphics are quite a hog. Can't have the whole map there. Is on your screen, along with a basic target icon. You turn the paddle. The game's goal is to defend the United States from global thermonuclear war. Using this paddle, twirling around, moving that target icon. The scenario is a computer glitch has caused an attack on the United States that no one planned. ICBMs are coming in. 
And you've got to use your paddle to target anti-ballistic missiles and interceptor jets to ward off the ICBMs coming in. You've got to be quick. You've got to be timely. Don't waste your jets. They need time to refuel. You've got to be strategic about warding off the missiles, or else you'll see cities and bases destroyed. And in a nod to Reagan and Star Wars, this game features an experimental laser that's really hard to use, but can be destructive to these missiles if you can get it going. The game is called War Games, and of course, it's based on a movie from 1983, yet another film about nuclear war. It airs on June 3rd, 1983. It stars a young Matthew Broderick as a computer hacker, who, in the hopes of setting up, playing a game with computers, dials a lot of numbers, finding computers that will play a game with it in this very early online bulletin board. He finds a game player, well, at least he thinks he does, but the game player turns out to be a computer. He initiates a game, and the game is global thermonuclear war. I'll bore you with the entire movie, but it turns out that the computer is set to start a war, and it's all that Matthew Broderick, the hacker, and now working with NORAD can do to cancel this computer system and to get the humans on both sides to stop a war from occurring. Reagan is a friend of the director. He watches the movie, and the next day, he tells congressmen and the Joint Chiefs of Staff about it. Not only that, years later, closer to the end of his presidency, he writes to that director again and says, <laughs> makes it abundantly clear, in case you thought your movie had nothing to do with what occurred, I can assure you that it did. That was a video game. That was a movie. It was something widely speculated about at the time. But nobody knew how close we might have actually came until Soviet archives were released. So this is great. We've got Bombfell back on as an advertiser, you may remember. It's real simple. Do you like going to stores and going to malls and parking and just to get clothes? Or would you rather have clothes that are great and tailored for you and sent to you? I'd rather have that. <laughs> I hate shopping. I'd rather be home reading history books. Look, here's how it works. So you sign up. You give them your measurements. You give Bombfell a sense of, like, what kind of brand you like. I'm a polo shirt guy, so that's what I pick. And they're going to get back to you with uh, a designer who will help pick out clothes for you that match your preferences. You're going to get a preview email that shows the clothes, and then you have the option to replace something. I think it, in one case, you know... I didn't really like the shirt, so you take that out, and your stylist is going to put another item in there and see if you like that. Once you approve the order, it's shipped to you, and then you have seven days to try on the items and you know, see if it's if it's what you like and if it fits and everything like that. You got seven days, or you can send it back and get something else, get a replacement. And the first time I used Bombfell, I had to send something back. It's seamless. It's easy. And remember, you know, you're working all day, you're commuting, you're 
you're listening to podcasts, you're maybe producing a podcast like me, you've got other stuff to do. I'd much rather have my picked out this way. Plus, I don't know a lot about brands, um, so, you know, then and, and what matches with what and the like. So, Bombfell's good for that. It's for men or those who are shopping for men. There's a special offer. You get $25 off your first purchase if you use the promo code for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics listeners. And that is www.bombfell.com slash myhistory. Bombfell.com slash myhistory. Now, uh, they have another special offer going on. The more items you keep, the more you save. So let's say you keep two items that the stylist picks out for you. You get 10% off. Three items, you get 15% off. You keep four or more items, you get 20% off. Keep more and get more. The more you keep, the more you save. Just go to www.bombfell.com slash myhistory. And remember, $25 off your first order for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics listeners. Thanks, Bombfell. September 26, 1983, a nuclear early warning system in the Soviet Union suggests that USAF missiles were arriving from the United States. Stanislav Petrov is the lieutenant colonel in a bunker. He's managing Superkov 15, codename Oko. This seemingly harmless little codename, belies the fact that his unit has a simple job. Since a first strike would devastate the ability of the Soviet Union to retaliate, he was to respond to any threat that the early warning system detected. Bunker computers report that the satellite picks up an ICBM, a single one, heading towards the Soviet Union. Petrov considers responding but disregards it. Then it indicates that five more missiles were coming in. This is the new computer. They've just installed this new early warning system, and his orders are clear. What is he going to do? Fortunately for us, Petrov decided to cancel the response. The system was too new. It was too unreliable, and the ground radar had not picked up any missiles. It was his own hunch, which he bet his country on, was that the United States wouldn't attack with just one or five missiles. The attack would be massive. This can't be it. And as it turned out, he was right. A error in the satellite regarding its orbit and the reflection of the sun had caused it to malfunction in the signal that it sent. Petrov was, in good Soviet style, at first awarded for his brave actions, and then as officials realized that they would be held responsible for the era, he was retired. During Reagan's first term, there were three Soviet leaders. Brezhnev 
dies in 1982, and Yuri Andropov becomes general secretary of the, the Communist Party, which is in the Politburo, which is essentially the leader of the Soviet Union. And there was some hope with this. And Andropov, the news report said, like jazz music. And the U.S. and Sovietologists, as they were called, or Kremlinologists, knew Andropov well. They knew that he was doing a little bit of reforming. Andropov is one of these guys, pre-Gorbachev, who's going to confront workers at train stations and say, what are you doing? You're supposed to be at work. You know, could you imagine the president of your country, you know, telling you to get back to work? And he, he was, had some reform-minded idea. But... As it turned out, there was no visible sign of any of this in relations towards the United States. Per a former KGB official, Oleg Kalugin, Andropov was distrustful of American actions as he assumed power. Kalugin was a friend of his and KGB counterintelligence official. He said the distrust was profound. Such an incident, if it went farther, if it reached the leadership in Moscow, is the type of things which would have had leadership feeling that Reagan might be making good on the threats he was out there making publicly. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding, and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. All the talk about the ash heap and the Soviets being an evil empire. After Reagan's surprise announcement on SDI, the Soviet Union did not react, oh great, you're going to build a missile shield. They said the U.S. was attempting to undermine the strategic balance. They appealed to the rest of the world, saying, look what they're trying to do. And to paraphrase the idea, if two people are fighting and both have swords, but one has a shield, and the other just has a sword, that person's defense is an offense. You're going to block my blow and then hit me. That was the Soviet argument. Reagan then had an interesting proposal as part of his package. He said, when we develop this missile shield technology, we'll share it with the Soviets. But from the Soviet side, and honestly, for most of the world, that was a ridiculous idea. No one thought that was going to happen. The shame of it is, it was probably true that he legitimately wanted to do that. But even in the United States, Richard Pearl, Colin Powell, any of the Warhawks were against this. And even Democratic candidate Walter Mondale thought, what a foolish idea. You're not going to share this with the Soviets. In any case, with all the public rhetoric out there, the Soviets could see that the president who called them an evil empire could not be expected to give them the technology at the right time. Star Wars gave the USSR a PR point. And at the same time, they were calling not only for a nuclear-free Europe, very attractive idea to many, but a treaty proposal for a ban on space weapons. The effects of Star Wars on... The Soviet thinking, and now a bit more is known about it, was mixed. One of the reactions, along with the harsh rhetoric and the military buildup, was to give some military hardliners within the Soviet Union more of a boost. They also did make some adjustments. Programs such as SCIF space lasers aimed at satellites moved forward. ABS to protect the uh, Moscow industrial region with anti-ballistic missiles. Albatross missiles, ground-based missiles aimed to take out satellites. Energia, 
heavy launcher to bring up weapons into space. Programs on all of these were accelerated long-term. The key, though, is that a lot of these programs, all of the programs I mentioned, existed before Reagan announced his SDI, or Star Wars, program. And they were not accelerated. The decision of the Council of Ministers approving acceleration of these programs did not occur until 1985. It didn't just, like, react immediately. Oh, my God, he's announcing Star Wars. We're going to react. Now, of course, the Soviet Union was already spending a high amount. There's estimates of 15 20% of its GDP on military or military-related operations. It does appear that with Star Wars, once the Soviets were able to establish some kind of match, not building a Star Wars program, but just a simple system, like knowing that any kind of SDI is going to involve satellites able to detect missiles in order to find a way to shoot them down, or that if they could just get very good systems to take out American satellites, they'd be good enough. By the end of the 80s, the Soviets were taking Star Wars off the table, not requiring the Americans to remove Star Wars. And these programs may have given them the confidence to do it. I think there's something important to consider about the, the period that we're in, in 1983, and that is that the Soviet Union and the Americans are not talking in a significant way. And part of this goes back to Carter who had canceled some of the relations. You're going to talk about the Olympics. You're talking about a grain embargo. embargo. Reagan does overturn when he becomes president, but nonetheless, it's there. Afghanistan is going at this point. Secretary of State Schultz is in a congressional hearing, and Senator Paul Tsongas of Massachusetts questions him. You know, you guys are going to be the first administration never to meet the Soviets. Schultz responds, so be it. So the battle goes to Europe, and Western Europe in particular, for acres of space, for silos, and hearts and minds. This occurs at a time when Reagan was pursuing a policy of pressure on the Soviets really around the world. Kissinger had said in 1969 that ideology didn't matter. Reagan made it clear that it did. Soviet sources say the evil empire speech was a point where a drop-off, and the Soviets considered that negotiations were futile. Talk in the UN lounge was that the Soviets would wait for another president. A handwritten note from Reagan to a drop-off is answered, but for the most part, rebuffed. When the Soviets shoot down the KLL Korean airliner in this year, their statements issued, but a drop-off himself is mysteriously quiet. German leader Helmut Schmidt, in fall 1982, says to George Schultz, The superpowers are not seeing each other's reality. They cannot read you. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. All three powers in Europe that were supposed to get new Pershing-2 missiles to match the 76 Soviet missiles have significant elements, the major opposition parties in their countries, opposed to their deployment. The UK Labour Party, the Italian Communists, which at this time was the significant opposition party in Italy in 83, and the German SDP. They were opposed to missile deployment. They weren't just rabble-rousers on the fringes of their population. These were winning issues for these parties and threatened the pro-NATO governments in each of these countries. Reagan was one year from election himself, and Democrats were restless. We mentioned Zongas' comment. Gary Hart calls for reductions in Reagan's defense spending. Mondale rails against war in space and not meeting with the Soviet Union. Ted Kennedy, Mario Cuomo all make similar statements. Comments about Star Wars, Tip O'Neill's dismissive comment about Buck Rogers' systems in space, demonstrate the feeling and the opposition to Reagan's proposals. Now, this is a series about Ronald Reagan. It's called A Dozen Ronald Reagans that we started you know, in 2016, and with so many events going on, I wasn't able to finish it in the way that I would. I'm finishing it now. The Dozen Ronald Reagans are the different Reagans that exists both, I think, in history and reality as near as we can tell, and then in also in public perception of them. I think from what you're hearing, there's this double play at work, but also a desire to keep that dual track open, but not to beg for it. Here's what George Shultz says. He expressed openly his ideas about the Soviet Union. I could see his willingness to move forward, to speak with a communist leader, or even travel to a communist country. He realized, I thought, that he was being blocked by his staff, by the Defense Department, by the CIA led by William Casey, fierce anti-communist. And he was being blocked by his own rhetoric. There didn't seem to be a way to break all that tension. Until... Now for the bad news. The worst blizzard... As you can see on the East Coast satellite photograph, the worst blizzard of the century from Washington to Philadelphia. And here you can see the storm tracking right up the coast, heavy snow falling throughout the day, as much as 25 inches of snow in Washington. The record is 25, and these records go back to 1880. A snowstorm buries Washington, D.C. in snow February 12th, 1983. The Reagans could not go on a planned trip to Camp David, and so they invited Schultz to dinner. Soviet Ambassador Dobrynin was also in town. Schultz was meeting him. Schultz takes Reagan aside. Do you want to meet with him? Great, was how he answered. But then, as Reagan thought about it more, he tells Schultz, we have to keep it a secret. And then he further informs him, no detailed exchange, no specifics in this meeting, But if Andropov can do business, so can I. This meeting is not popular with the people that get Reagan elected, the real 
hardliners, the party favorites, the Reagan favorites within the party. It's not popular with the NSC. It's not popular with Bill Clark, one of Reagan's key advisors at this time. He calls up Bill Casey on the telephone as soon as he hears about the plans for this meeting. I want to let you know, Bill, I argued against this meeting. He echoed the feelings of Bill Casey, U.N. Ambassador Gene Kirkpatrick, Defense Secretary Weinberger. This group wanted no movement, no talking, hard line with the Soviet Union. Keep them in the dark until concrete steps are made, until they move to us. Any talking was helping the Soviet Union more than us. As Bill Casey told George Shultz, don't be a pilgrim, George. What's that? An early settler. Don't be an early settler. The story of Reagan, still a staff-driven president, a delegator, can in some ways be a story of staff. It's really impossible to view the presidency, and I've seen that throughout this series, without looking at the different formations of staff. You know, he's doing really well under one of the regarded in Washington as the best chief of staff, James Baker, and has his worst time under Don Regan. But that might color the view too much in that direction, too. Because if we're just seeing him as a person bouncing between people, like essentially being one of those folks that are, you know, whoever they talk to last, that's who they listen to. I don't know if you can put that descriptor on Reagan, because he does choose between staff. And in this case, Schultz wins the battle. All of these people call Reagan. Schultz wins out. And a few days later, when Dobrynin arrives at uh, George Schultz's office for a planned meeting with the Secretary of State, Schultz surprises him. Do you want to meet the president? Yes, of course, Dobrynin answers. He's whisked down an elevator, into a car, and through the underground garage at State, where they arrive at the east gate of the White House. It's just not as well watched by the press as the the West is brought to see Reagan. Schultz says the following. Rather than the brief meeting I expected, the president talked with him for almost two hours. He clearly thought about the meeting a great deal. Ronald Reagan is the master of the personal encounter, and he impressively engaged Dobrynin on START, INF, Afghanistan, Poland, Schultz, and we must say his accounts are always filled with the battles he's having with insiders. Bill Clark didn't trust Reagan. I had no doubts. But it was a small issue, seemingly, that came up that Reagan was probably most concerned about. In 1978, seven Pentecostals ran past Soviet guards and into the U.S. Embassy. Now it's 1983. They're still living in the U.S. Embassy basement. They've been prosecuted. Now, we should say there, there was religion going on in the, in, the, in the Soviet Union. That's kind of a misunderstood uh, thing. Um, it wasn't encouraged. You, you, you couldn't be a favorite of the party. You couldn't be favored upon in society and 
be in religion. There was the, there was some conflict there. So these Pentecostals were very aggressive and didn't want any authority but religious authority. Um, nonetheless, they weren't free to pursue their religion, as we in the United States are. This was very important to Reagan when he heard this story. And he asked Joe Brendan, you know, we're, I'm meeting here with the Soviet ambassador, and can anything be done? But he also adds to the ambassador, if you're able to do something on this, I can assure you we will not crow, we will not embarrass you. Now, it's not easy. It's not like he walks out of this meeting, the Soviet ambassador, and gets on the phone with a drop-off, and these guys are released. There's a lot of negotiation going on between the two uh, sides, between lesser people, deputies, really. Not exactly in the way the Americans want, but long-term, maybe it was better. The Soviets basically concede that they're going to allow these people the Pentecostals, to leave the U.S. Embassy, and they're not going to prosecute them. They can go home. But that's what they have to do. They're not going to put them on a plane immediately. They're going to process their passports as they would with any other Soviet citizen. They're not going to accept that the U.S. has the ability to, you know, to just move them out of the country. So this involves the Pentecostals to trust the assurance of the United States that nothing will happen to them, and the Soviets do, by June of 1983, put them on a plane to Vienna. This was publicized, but not extremely so. Reagan had promised that he wouldn't embarrass the Soviets, and he did not. George Shultz says, I was asked if this was a test, and I think it was. And something else happens in 1983, something that we should focus on more in Cold War history, election results in Western Europe. Margaret Thatcher's party increases its majority. Labor Party, under anti-nuke Michael Foote, is destroyed in the 1983 election. The Italian Christian Democratic Party, in favor of the new missile placements in Sicily, are in danger of defeat to the Italian communists. The Italian communists are, go as far as being aligned with the Soviet Union. And they have direct communication. And so the Christian Democratic Party makes a deal in a camper. That got a lot of play in the press, the so-called camper deal, with the small Italian Socialist Party. The price of that deal is that the leader of this small party, a socialist, will have to become prime minister. But despite his left leanings, the Socialist Party in Italy is not the Communist Party. They're not aligned with the Soviets, and they support the placement of Pershing II missiles if the Soviets do not negotiate properly for arms reductions. Combined with the Socialists, the Christian Democrats win the election, and NATO's hand is strengthened. Germany was trickier. The Soviets had indirectly attempted to influence that election. <laughs> Something that's talked about today, right? This is 1983. The new SDP leader, Jochen Vogel, goes to Moscow and meets with Andropov. This move boosts his campaign. He starts talking about the benefits that Germany's going to get if they give up on these missiles. Two visitors and one miscalculation changed the dynamics of the German election in 1983. First of all, 
Vice President Bush visits West Germany. But before he does, he goes to all of the Allies, six countries, and gets their universal resolve behind the placement of the Persian two missiles, and then goes to Bonn and makes a speech. But okay, that's the Americans, and this is West Germany, and there's some anti-American feeling anyway. A surprising figure comes to West Germany and makes a speech that changes the election greatly. And he is the socialist president of France, Francois Mitterrand. It must be remembered that Mitterrand had been a prisoner of the Nazis. He'd served in the French resistance. He makes this point in his speech. But now, as the Washington Post describes, he leans forward in the podium and in a voice hushed in emotion, described the Germans as a great, noble, and courageous people that he had come to know and love. There must be solidarity in the union of countries. And he said the Pershing missiles must be placed. In addition, TASS, the Soviet news agency, reports, and it's widely known as the organ of the government, that there could be social unrest if the SDP didn't win. And this causes a bit of a backlash. Helmut Kohl and the CDU party wins a huge victory. This work with the Allies pushing back on Soviet influence in 1983 was as much a part of the end of the Cold War as all the steps that will come later. Absent this, all the tough talk from the United States about weapon and increasing defense budgets just might have been matched on the PR stage by collapsing support in Western Europe and the embrace of the Soviet Union as a legitimate country and a partner in the world. You know, in the Civil War, common thesis is that Abraham Lincoln's re-election in 1864 really ended the war because before that, the Confederacy, you know, could be hoping for a different government and a different leader, and after the election, there was no way. I think this is true of 1983 as well, and it's also true of Reagan's own election. His opponents attack Star Wars, Buck Rogers plans and the like. Walter Mondale in 1984 certainly should not be said to go as far as the SDP or visit Moscow or anything like that, but Gromyko comes for meetings. Foreign Secretary, he meets with Reagan as well. He also meets with Walter Mondale. And Walter Mondale agrees to, as an incentive, the Soviets to come to the negotiating table he would agree to a nuclear freeze at current levels of nuclear arms to be followed by reductions. Pass, the Soviet news agency, issues a statement. It followed from what Walter Mondale said that he, for his part, regarded a turn for the better in relations between the United States and the Soviet Union as important and in principle possible. Some of his ideas, Tass further said, could open up certain possibilities. <laughs> Reagan and Schultz were looking for a different idea. We'll meet with the Soviets, and they were actually willing to take away some of the uh, conditions, not to have additional conditions. It's not going to be like some of the hardliners, where like, you have to get out of Afghanistan for us to even talk. 
but he didn't want to provide any incentives on the U.S. side to bring the Soviets to the table. Mondale's embrace by Tass was unlikely to do him much good with the American public. Internally, there's another change in 1983, and that's that George Shultz, the Secretary of State, asserts himself. Secretary of State should have control over the foreign policy of the United States, except for the president, of course. Reagan's nature of delegating to staff meant that there was internal warfare during the Reagan administration at different times between different people. In one of many events that upsets Schultz, there's a group of exercises between the U.S. and Honduras which looks like a preview of an invasion of Nicaragua, something the world is very much against. Schultz has no idea about this. He's hearing about it from the news and after the fact, and definitely hearing about it from other countries. He's furious. He demands a meeting, not only with Reagan, but with VP Bush and Jim Baker and others in the administration so that there's witnesses. And he says, this undermines me. And perhaps you should find another Secretary of State. Reagan's taken aback. Schultz goes on. I think Bill Clark seems to want the job. There's Gene Kirkpatrick or Henry Kissinger. Kissinger had been actually doing a bit of backstabbing along with former President Nixon through back channels, getting to Reagan that uh, Schultz's policy and any kind of warming of Soviet, U.S.-Soviet relations was no good. It's kind of the opposite of, of what they were doing in the White House during their time. Um, more hardline as a former president and former national security advisor and former secretary of state. Maybe you should put Kissinger in. He knew that he had just named all of his critics, basically, Schultz did. But Schultz goes on, you know, saying, look, this is just the way it is. What's fundamental is that the process be open and legitimate and that you provide your secretary of state with a crucial part. Reagan is taken aback. He had no idea about this. But George, you are my choice. I want you to do it. No decisions made at that meeting. Reagan certainly does not fire Schultz. Schultz doesn't quit. He gets a call, a supportive call, from Nancy Reagan. And Nancy Reagan makes it clear that she believes Bill Clark should be fired. It's August 1983, where, as a result of conversations stemming from this initial confrontation, Schultz and Reagan would start to have weekly meetings. Access to the president, particularly a president like Reagan that has a lot of staff controlling him and controlling his information flow in different ways, really represented important change in thinking and policy. Schultz was not anti-nuke. Schultz was not a liberal. Schultz was a supporter of the Contra movement. Schultz was a supporter of a, of a semi-hard line with the Soviets that we can talk, but they're going to have to give. Schultz was a supporter of we win, they lose, all of that. But he wanted that dual track to be real. And you see in the administration the difference between pragmatists and ideologues. That's why I put August 1983, this internal movement, elevating Schultz as a very important moment 
in the Cold War just as much as, as everything else. How do we judge Reagan? And, and the big question about him, really the big biggest question of this series where we address so many, the one that supersedes all of the talk about him is, did he end the Cold War? Well, this is part 10 of the series, and it's really part one of two of a kind of sub-series within this series is going to be about the Cold War, two episodes about the Cold War. And this answer is complex. I think you have to say, and I think the point has to be made, that often isn't made, that if Reagan were a one-term president, we wouldn't even be asking the question about the Cold War. If anything, history might have concluded that he accelerated it. But as part of history, we need to inquire, we need to look deeper. And I think looking deeper, you do see threads that there was the beginning of some improvement and we have his own desire to end mutually assured destruction. But in terms of the commonly asserted, you know, we won the Cold War because we took a strong stance, because we increased our armaments, I don't know that at least looking at the early term, if there's a lot of evidence that that was working. This discussion about Reagan and the Cold War, you have to see the two terms to see almost two different types of people and combine them together to answer that question. But I will mention two quotes. Here's the comment of George Keenan, who said this in 1996 when he was 92 this old legend of the Cold War, the more American political leadership was seen in Moscow as committed to military resolution, the greater the trending in Moscow to tighten the controls by both party and police. William Bunch wrote, tear down this myth. He's not exactly a, a fan of Reagan, but what's misunderstood about Reagan was the struggle between the anti-communist rhetoric and his belief in high-level diplomacy was driven in part by his real fear of apocalypse. Reagan's loftier instincts had to wait for the arrival of a like-minded Soviet. This is part 10. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20.